Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. There's something very special about commencement speeches when those who have lived are invited to inspire those who are about to launch into their lives with fresh credentials. It's a time to reflect and a time to dream. A special group of graduates who armed themselves with MBAs in sustainable business were given a launching lecture by one of nature's strongest advocates. In a moment, the commencement address by Robert Kennedy Jr. to the 2006 graduating class of Presidio College. It's a must listen. Stay tuned. The Wild Side News brings together the best people on good old planet Earth who get it, who are uniting to recreate our Earth for the people and the nature that sustains us. Humans have survived to this point, so somewhere in our matrix is the gene for wisdom. That wisdom gene pool is now activating for its own survival and demonstrating its existence in the best way it knows, by speaking out and activating the wisdom gene in others. The wisdom gene perhaps runs in families. This was demonstrated a few weeks back when Robert Kennedy Jr. addressed the 2006 graduating class of Presidio College in San Francisco which offers master's degrees in business administration focused on creating sustainable business. Robert Kennedy Jr. just may be one of the most significant voices of the earth. He made that clear in his address to the graduating class. His wisdom rings clear. And now, Robert Kennedy, Jr. I, first of all, I want to congratulate the, the graduates of Presidio. I, uh, I'm on the advisory board of Presidio, and I, I came on the, the advisory board at the request of Stephen Swig. And I did it because of my admiration for him. And in so many ways, um, this, this school is a reflection of his ideals and the way that he lives his own life. And his, his idealism, his optimism, uh, and his sense that, you know, our, our nation and our generation are going to be judged. We're going to be judged by future generations. And we're going to be judged not so much based upon the wealth of our citizens and the size of our armies or the throat weight of our weapons or the power of our industries, but rather based on how we care for the least fortunate members of our society, how, how strong, how, how vigorously we try to live up to the ideals of our nation, that our nation represents to the rest of the world, and how strongly we avoid the seduction of the notion that we can advance ourselves as a people by leaving our poor brothers and sisters behind or by compromising the environment and the infrastructure that they are going to rely on. And he has uh, preached this gospel from the beginning that business is not just about making a pile for yourself and, you know, whoever dies with the most stuff wins, but it's about trying to make our communities better. And um, to me, that's what environmental activism is about. It's not about protecting the fishes and the birds for their own sake. It's about recognizing that nature is the infrastructure of our communities and that if we want to meet our obligation as a generation, as a nation, as a civilization, which is to create communities for our children that provide them with the same opportunities for dignity and enrichment 
as the communities that our parents gave us, we've got to start by protecting our environmental infrastructure, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the, the public lands that, that enrich us, that connect us to our past, that, uh, that uh, connect us to our history, that provide context to our communities, that are the source ultimately of our values and our virtues and our, our characters of people. And what, one of the things that, that, that Steve has, has tried to do throughout his own career and throughout his own life and, uh, and, and try to make this university symbolize is to, kind of, is to give us broader horizons, longer horizons. We're driven in this nation and, in, you know, and, and through globalization with shorter and shorter horizons. Politicians rarely look beyond the next election. Uh, industrialists rarely look beyond the next dividend distribution or shareholders report. And their incentives, all of their incentives are about, um, about uh, creating, uh, about reducing services in order to increase value. And the best way to do that or increase dividends or create, you know, or, or increase services by reducing costs. And the way to do that most often is by looking for capital that belongs to somebody else to liquidate for cash. Normally that's the capital that belongs to the future generations. And that's what all pollution is. It's a way of stealing from future generations in order to feed the, the screaming constituents of today. And you know, the, the future whispers, the present shouts. And so much of our society is about responding to that shouting by the present and comp by compromising the, the wealth and the rights and our moral obligation and our trustees' obligation to future generations. And the subject that I want to talk about today is about the, the corrosive impact of excessive corporate power, not just on our culture, but on our democracy, about the, you know, the defining cultural value of our nation. And uh, when I talk about this, I don't want you to think that I think uh, all corporations are bad because there aren't, they aren't. And I work with corporations in my work all the time, and I depend on you know, the good people who are working. And in each of these industries, you find a range of different kind of behaviors and commitment to our society. In the oil industry, there are good companies like Conoco and Hess, and then there are terrible, and BP, and there are terrible companies like Exxon. And in all of these you know, different industries, there are a range of different behaviors and, and really that depend on the moral leadership and the, the character and the, uh, and the principled commitment of the people who work in those industries, the leadership of those, uh, of those companies. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not speaking, when I talk about corporations and about excessive power, I'm not saying that you can't have a good corporation uh, and that there aren't good and bad corporations, but I'm talking about certain principles that all of us need to understand if we're going to understand the dynamics of globalization and the, the, the forces that all of us are going to be dealing with and the you principally as business leaders who, who want to make a moral statement um, are going to be up against as you move forward. Um, and I'm going to talk about this administration because it's really the embodiment of what happens when corporations take control of our government. And I want to say this, that over 23 years as an environmental advocate, I've been disciplined about being nonpartisan and bipartisan in my approach to these issues. I don't think there's any such thing as Republican children or Democratic children. I think the worst thing that could happen to the environment is if it becomes the province of a single political party. But you can't talk honestly about the environment in any context today without speaking critically of this president. This is the worst environmental administration that we've ever had. If you go to NRDC's website, The Natural Resource Defense Council, which is one of the groups for which I work, 
you'll see over 400 major environmental rollbacks listed there that have been promoted or implemented by this administration over the past six years as part of a deliberate concerted effort to eviscerate 30 years of environmental law. It's a stealth attack. The White House has used all kinds of ingenious machinations to conceal its radical agenda from the American public, uh, including Orwellian rhetoric. When they want to destroy the forest, they call it the Healthy Forest Act. When they want to destroy the air, they call it the Clear Skies Bill. But most insidiously, they've put polluters in charge of virtually all the agencies that are supposed to be protecting Americans from pollution. The head of the Forest Service is a timber industry lobbyist, Mark Ray, probably the most rapacious in our history. The head of public lands is a mining industry lobbyist, Stephen Griles, who believes that public lands are unconstitutional. The head of the Air Division at EPA is a utility lobbyist who's represented nothing but the worst air, utility air polluters in our country um, during his entire career. The head of Superfund is a woman whose last job was teaching corporate polluters how to evade Superfund. The head of uh, the second in command of EPA is a Monsanto lobbyist. A couple of weeks ago, the 60 Minutes in the New York, New York Times uh, did these stories as the exposés on this character, Philip Cooney, who's the number one environmental advisor to, to President Bush. He's the head of the Council on Environmental Quality in the White House, advising the president on the environmental impacts of every decision he makes. And Philip Cooney was formerly, his last job was the chief lobbyist for the American Petroleum Institute. And as it turns out, his job for the past six years for this administration has been combing through every scientific document from every agency and removing critical statements about the oil industry or the coal industry. And, and to suppress, he's suppressed over a dozen or redacted or suppressed over a dozen major documents, for example, scientific studies, for example, on global warming. So his job has been to lie to the American people in order to protect corporate profit taking. And this is something that we see throughout this, this government, virtually all of the subsecretaries and agency heads, the Department of Commerce, which regulates fisheries, Department of Interior, Department of Agriculture, Department of Energy, the EPA, and even the relevant divisions of the Justice Department. You'll find the same thing. It is the lobbyists for the worst of the worst of the worst of these uh, uh, industries. Uh, of, the of the corporations, the worst corporations within each of these polluting industries that is now running the agencies that are supposed to be protecting us from pollution. And there's nothing wrong with having business people in government. It is a good thing if your objective is to recruit competence and expertise. But in all of these situations, these individuals, these particular people, were brought into government not for their expertise, but rather to subvert the very laws that they're now charged with enforcing in order to enrich the president's corporate paymasters. And they have imposed um, enormous diminution on quality of life on the people of this country over the past six years. Most Americans don't know about it because we have an indolent and negligent press in this country that has simply let down American democracy over the past six years. And I talked about that issue last night in a talk that I did at Steve's house about what's happened because of the corporate control of the American press, where five companies now control virtually all of our TV, all of our radio, 80% of our newspapers, um, all of our billboards, most of the internet content providers, and they're no longer giving us news, they're giving us entertainment because it means more profit for them, and we're today the best entertained and the least informed people on the face of the earth. So Americans don't connect the dots between what's happening in the White House and, you know, when they see a kid with asthma. Who, you know, they're, they're not making the connection between those policies or when they can't eat their fish from their local waterway. And the money that was taken for the president and the rules that were rolled back and the, and the situations that are getting worse and worse in our day-to-day -day life. I'll give you a, just a couple of examples. 
just from one industry, from coal-burning power plants. I have three, Mary and I, my wife who's here today, sitting next to Steve's beautiful wife, um, Mary, uh, both of the Marys, um, we have three children, three sons who have asthma. One out of every four black children in America cities now has asthma. We know that the principal trigger for asthma attacks are ozone and particulates. And the primary source of those materials in our atmosphere are 1,100 coal-burning power plants that are burning coal illegally. It's been illegal for 18 years. They were supposed to have cleaned up those materials 18 years ago. Many of them did. For example, in Massachusetts, all of the coal-burning power plants removed those materials. But 1,100 of them did not. And it, it was illegal. It's criminal what they're doing, literally. The Clinton administration was prosecuting the worst 75 of those companies, criminally and civilly. But this is an industry that donated $48 million to this president during the 2000 cycle, and then it has given $58 million since. And one of the first things that President Bush did when he came into office was to order the Justice Department and EPA to drop all those lawsuits. The top three enforcers at EPA, Bruce Buckheit, Sylvia Lawrence, and Eric Schaefer, all resigned their jobs in protest. And these weren't Democrats. These were people who served through the Bush administration, the previous Bush, and the Reagan administration. The top Justice Department attorney said that this had never happened in American history before, where a presidential candidate accepts money from criminals under indictment, then orders those cases dropped when he achieves office. And immediately after doing that, the president abolished the new source rule, which was the heart and soul of the Clean Air Act, the most important provision in that statute. That's the rule that required those companies to clean up 18 years ago. And so there's now no, no obligation that they ever clean up their ozone particulates. And not only does it put the ones who did clean up at a competitive disadvantage, but it also means that Mary and I will be able to watch our children gasping for air on bad air days because somebody gave money to a politician. And if you go to EPA's website today, the federal EPA, not NRDC's website, but federal EPA's, you'll see that that decision alone by President Bush kills 18,000 Americans every year. Six times the number of people who were killed in the World Trade Center attack, but year after year after year. This should be the front page headline of every newspaper in this country every day, but you won't read about it in the American press. Twelve months ago, the federal EPA announced that in 19 states, it's now unsafe to eat any freshwater fish in the state because of mercury contamination. The mercury is coming from those same coal-burning power plants for the most part. In some of the western states, it's also coming from gold mining, but the, the, the largest part of it is coming from those same plants. In 48 states, at least some of the fish are unsafe to eat. In fact, the only two states where all the fish are safe to eat are Wyoming and Alaska, where the Republican-controlled legislatures have refused to appropriate the money to test the fish. But in all the other states, at least some or most or all the fish are unsafe to eat. We know a lot about mercury that we didn't know a few years ago. We know, for example, that according to CDC, one out of every six American women now has so much mercury in her womb that her children are at risk for a grim inventory of diseases, autism, blindness, mental retardation, heart, liver, and kidney disease. I have so much mercury in my body just from eating fish that I, I had my levels tested recently, and anybody who wants to get their levels tested, send a locket, go to our website, Waterkeeper Alliance, and send us a little lock of your hair, and we'll test your, your mercury levels and send them back. But I had my levels tested. My levels are two and a half times what EPA considers safe. I was told by Dr. David Carpenter that a woman with my levels of mercury in her blood would have children with cognitive impairment. And I said to him, thanks. 
I said to him, you mean she might have, she might have children with cognitive impairment? He said, no, no, the science is very certain today. Her children would have some level of permanent neurological injury, brain damage. Probably an IQ loss in those kids of about five to seven points at the levels of mercury that I have in my body. Well, today, according to CDC, there are 240,000 children born in this country every year who've been exposed to dangerous levels of mercury in their mother's wombs. President Clinton, recognizing the gravity of this national health epidemic, reclassified mercury as a hazardous pollutant under the Clean Air Act. That triggered a requirement that all of those companies remove 90% of the mercury within three and a half years. It would have cost them less than 1% of plant revenues to do that. It was a great deal for the American people, but still billions of dollars for that industry. And this is the industry that gave $100 million in contributions to this president. And about 10 weeks ago, the White House announced that it was abolishing the Clinton era rules and substituting instead rules that were written by utility industry lobbyists that will require the industry to never have to clean up the mercury. And incidentally, The, the, the law firm that wrote these new rules is a lobbying firm called Latham and Watkins. And the, it's the lobbying firm for the worst of the worst of these utilities, are criminal enterprises like Southern Company. And the chief lobbyist of that law firm until recently was a man named Jeffrey Homestead, who today is the head of the Air Division at EPA. So he simply allowed his former colleagues to write a law to benefit his clients And then he made that federal law. And of course, we know what's going to happen to him when he leaves that agency. He's going to go right back and cash in. The same thing Philip Cooney did after the 60 Minutes piece drove him out. Two days later, he was, he was hired by Exxon Company. And in fact, he's been working for Exxon Company the whole time. It's just that we've been paying him. You know, but he never stopped working for him. And that's the truth with all of these guys. Uh, Mary and I live two and a half hours south of the Adirondacks, the, the, the oldest protected wilderness in, in the world. It's been protected as forever wild since, 19, since 1888. We had a right, the American people, to believe that generations of Americans would be able to enjoy those pristine landscapes and lakes unspoiled. But today, one-fifth of the lakes in the Adirondacks is sterilized from acid rain that's coming from those same coal-burning power plants. And this president, having accepted $100 million from that industry, has put the brakes on the statutory requirements that they clean up the sulfur dioxide And this year, as a direct result of those rollbacks, EPA recently announced that the sulfur dioxide levels in America's air have gone up for the first time since the passage of the Clean Air Act, astronomically full 4% just in one year. Two years ago, in May, I flew over the coal fields of the Appalachians, where this coal is coming from, West Virginia and Kentucky. And I saw something that if the American people could see it, there would be a revolution in this country. We are cutting down the Appalachian Mountains, these historic landscapes where Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett roamed that are you know, so much the, the source of American culture. And we're cutting them down with these giant machines called drag lines, which are, you know, they're, they're, are the embodiment of what Steve says is happening to America, the liquidization of our, of our, of our landscapes and of our, of our commonwealth. But these giant machines, one of these machines is 22 stories high. I flew under one, underneath one, in a, in a little Piper Club, cup. They cost a half a billion dollars, and of course, they practically dispense with the need for human labor. And that, indeed, is the point. When my father was fighting strip mining in Appalachian back in the 60s, I remember a conversation that I had with him when I was, when I was 14 years old, where he said, they're not just destroying the environment, but they're permanently impoverishing these communities. 
because there's no way that they can ever regenerate an economy from these barren moonscapes that are left behind. And he said, they're doing it so they can break the unions. And that's exactly what they did. Back when he told me that, there were 140,000 unionized mine workers digging coal out of tunnels in the ground in West Virginia. And today, they're taking the same amount of coal out of West Virginia as they were in 1968. But today, there's only 11,000 miners doing it, and almost none of them are unionized because the strip industry isn't. So these big corporations, Massey Coal and Peabody Coal, all the profit is flowing out of West Virginia up to Wall Street, and their CEOs live on Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue, respectively, and none of it is staying in West Virginia, which is being liquidated to make them rich. And this, you know, and it's all illegal. You're using these giant machines and 2,500 tons of dynamite that are exploded every day in West Virginia, a Hiroshima bomb every week. We are blowing the tops off the mountains to get at the coal seams beneath. And then they take the rock and debris and rubble with these giant machines and scrape them into the adjacent river valley. They have buried 1,200 miles of America's rivers and streams. By the time this president leaves office, they will have flattened an area of the Appalachians the size of Delaware. It's all illegal. You cannot, in the United States, take rock and debris and rubble and dump it into a waterway without a Clean Water Act permit, and you can never get a permit to do such a thing. So we sued them. And we sued them in front of a conservative Republican federal judge, Charles Hayden, in West Virginia. And he said, Judge Hayden said the same thing I said. He said, it's all illegal. It's been illegal since day one. And he enjoined all mountaintop mining. Two days from when he got that decision, Peabody Cole and Massey Cole met in the White House in the West Wing with Stephen Griles, and they wrote, rewrote one word of the Clean Water Act, the interpretation of the word fill, to change 30 years of statutory interpretation to make it legal as it is today in every jurisdiction in this country, to dump rock, debris, rubble, garbage, solid waste into any waterway of the United States without a Clean Water Act permit. All you need today is a rubber stamp permit from the Corps of Engineers, which in many cases you can get over the telephone. So this is what we are fighting today. It is not just the destruction of our environment. It is the subversion of our democracy. And you know, the polluting industries and their indentured servants in the political process have been very adept over the past couple of decades about characterizing or marginalizing environmentalists as, as radicals or, or tree huggers or, as I heard the other day, pagans who worship trees and sacrifice people. But there's nothing radical about the idea of clean air and clean water for our children. And we are not protecting the environment for the sake of the fishes and the birds. We're doing it for our own sake because we recognize that it is the infrastructure of our communities. And if you talk to these people on Capitol Hill who are promoting these kind of rollbacks and ask them, why are you doing this? What they invariably say is, well, the time has come in our nation's history where we have to choose now between economic prosperity on the one hand and environmental protection on the other. And that is a false choice. In 100% of the situations, good environmental policy is identical to good economic policy. If we want to measure our economy, and this is how we ought to be measuring it, based upon how it produces jobs and the dignity of jobs over the generations, over the long term, and how it preserves the value of the assets of our communities. If, on the other hand, we want to do what they've been urging us to do on Capitol Hill, which is to treat the planet as if it were business and liquidation, convert our natural resources to cash as quickly as possible, have a few years of pollution-based prosperity, we can generate an instantaneous cash flow and the illusion of a prosperous economy, but our children are going to pay for our joyride. 
and they're going to pay for it with denuded landscapes and poor health and huge cleanup costs that are going to amplify over time and that they will never be able to pay. Environmental injury is deficit spending. It's a way of loading the costs of our generation's prosperity onto the backs of our children. And one of the things that I've done pretty persistently over the past 10 years is to constantly go around and confront this argument that an investment in our environment is a diminishment of our nation's wealth. It doesn't diminish our wealth. It's an investment in infrastructure. The same as investing in telecommunications and road construction. It's an investment we have to make if we're going to ensure the economic vitality of our generation and the next generation. And, you know, all this word sustainability, all that word means is that God wants us to use the things that we've been given, the bounties of the earth, to enrich ourselves, to improve our quality of life, to serve others. But we can't use them up. We can't sell the farm piece by piece in order to pay for the groceries. We can't drain the pond to catch the fish. We can't cut down the mountain to get at the coal. We can live off the interest. We can't go into the capital. That belongs to our children. And we have a trustee's obligation to the next generation. And what we do as environmentalists is we, you know, we're emissaries for the future generations. We amplify those voices you know, and give them a bullhorn to allow those future generations to participate in the political dialogue from which they're otherwise excluded. And I want to say, you know, one thing is that there's no stronger advocate for free market capitalism than myself. I believe that the free market is the most efficient and democratic way to distribute the goods of the land. And the best thing that could happen to the environment is if we had true free market capitalism in this country. Because a, a capital, because the free market encourages efficiency. And efficiency means the elimination of waste. And pollution is waste. And a free market also would encourage us to properly value our natural resources. And it's the undervaluation of those resources that causes us to use them wastefully. But in a true free market economy, you can't make yourself rich without making your neighbors rich and without enriching your community. But what polluters do is they make themselves rich by making everybody else poor. They raise standards of living for themselves by lowering quality of life for everybody else. And they do that by escaping the discipline of the free market. You show me a polluter, I'll show you a subsidy. I'll show you a fat cat using political clout to escape the discipline of the free market and force his, the public to pay his production costs. That's what all pollution is. All of it. And, you know, corporations are externalizing machines. They're constantly looking for ways to get somebody else to pay their cost of production. And one of the easiest ways to do that is through pollution because you're just shifting your cleanup costs to the public. And when those, you know, coal-burning power plants in the Ohio Valley, the Southern Company, puts mercury in the air, which poisons our children's brains, which, you know, which, which uh, makes it so that I can't fish in my state, New York. I buy a fishing license for 30 bucks every year, but I can't eat the fish from the local fishing holes because Southern Company has privatized them. They've stolen something from the public of value in order to create a subsidy for themselves. And, you know, before we came in here, Ron Nazer was asking me about the kind of historical antecedents of the environmental movement, because I, in his earlier talk yesterday, I talked about Jefferson and some of these other, but I said to him that I, I would do this, and it's a little bit of a digression, but this whole talk has turned into a digression. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, under the laws of the state of New York, the public, the people of the state own the fisheries of the state, and they own the waterways of the state. The Constitution of New York and California and every other state says the people own those things. Everybody has a right to use them. Nobody can use them in a way that will diminish or injure their use and enjoyment by others. 
This is called the public trust doctrine. It's ancient law. It goes back to the Code of Justinian in Roman times. In ancient Rome, um, the, the Code of Justinian says that those things that are not susceptible to private ownership, but by their nature are owned by all the people, the air. It enumerated a number of them. The air, water, flowing rivers and waterways, the beaches, the wetlands, the aquifers, the wandering animals, the fisheries. Those things belong to all the people. Um, everybody can use them. Nobody can use more than their share. If you were a citizen of Rome, whether you're rich or poor, humble or noble, African or European, if you were a citizen, you had an absolute right to cross a beach, throw in a net, and take out your share of the fish. The emperor himself couldn't stop you. Roman law broke down in Europe during the Dark Ages. And this, the, the, the first thing when you, you see a democracy breaking down or a constitutional government breaking down, the first thing that happens are efforts to privatize the commons, to steal the public trust assets from the public and make them private wealth. This happened all over Europe after the breakdown of Roman law. The feudal lords and local kings began to privatize the commons. For example, in England, King John said that the deer no longer belong to the people, only the nobility can hunt them. And that's what got him in trouble with Robin Hood. He also erected navigational barriers on the, the Thames and the other rivers of England, and he, and he sold monopolies to the fisheries, excluding the public and selling them only to wealthy people and giving them control. This triggered a, a revolution in England. The public rose up and confronted him on the field of running need and forced him to sign the Magna Carta, which was the beginning of constitutional democracy. And the Magna Carta has all is the genesis for all of our Bill of Rights, but it also has additional chapters on free access to fisheries and, and navigable waters and the other public trust doctrines. Those rights descended to the people of the state when we had them in our country. So this is the commons. It belongs to the public. But what industry tries to do is get itself a subsidy by privatizing those things, by stealing them from the public. This, we no longer own the fish in New York State. The Southern Company now owns them. And you know, when those companies put the ozone and particulates in the air, they cause a million asthma attacks, a million lost work days, um, uh, uh, 18,000 people dead. When they put the acid rain in, which privatized the public and private timber stands in the Appalachians, they have destroyed the uh, forest cover on the high peaks of the Appalachians from Georgia all the way up into northern Quebec. When they do those, they're, they're getting subsidies for themselves, and they're violating free market capitalism. And what all of the federal environmental laws were intended to do, there were 28 laws passed after Earth Day 1970, and all of them are intended to restore free market capitalism in America by forcing actors in the marketplace to pay the true cost of bringing their product to market. And what we do in the riverkeeper movement, the waterkeeper movement, you know, where we have patrol boats now on 160 rivers and each one is sued polluters, we don't even consider ourselves environmentalists anymore. We're free marketeers. We go out into the marketplace and we catch the cheaters, the polluters. And we say to them, we're going to force you to internalize your costs the same way that you internalize your profits. Because as long as somebody is cheating the free market, it distorts the whole marketplace. And none of us gets the advantages of the efficiency and the democracy that the marketplace otherwise promises our country. And what we need to understand as Americans is that there is a huge difference between free market capitalism, which democratizes society, which makes us more efficient and prosperous, and the kind of corporate crony capitalism, which has been embraced by this White House, which is as antithetical to democracy, efficiency, and prosperity in America as it is in Nigeria. Now, you know, there's nothing wrong with corporations. They are a good thing. I own a corporation. Um, and they encourage us to assemble wealth, to take risks. 
create jobs, etc. They drive our economy, and they're absolutely vital for that. But they should not be running our government. And the reason they shouldn't be running our government is because they don't want the same things for America that we want. Corporations do not want free markets. They do not want democracy. They want profits. And oftentimes, the best way for them to get profits is to use our campaign finance system, which is just a system of legalized bribery, to get a hold of a public official, then use that public official to help them dismantle the marketplace and give them a competitive edge or monopoly control, or to allow them to privatize the commons, to steal from the public treasury. That's how we created them. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that we would be nuts to let them anywhere near our government because they, <laughs> they don't want... They, they're just going to use it to make their profits bigger. That's how we created them. To, we, we set them up to do. So that's why, from the beginning of our national history, our most visionary leadership has warned the American people against the domination of, of you know, by, by corporate power. And, you know, this White House has been, again, you know, really uh, uh, skillful at, at convincing the American people and a gullible press that the big threat to American democracy is big government, okay? And big government is a threat, and now we know that more than ever with the wiretaps and the torture and the you know, jails and all this, this no, habeas corpus. It is definitely a threat to democracy, but it's dwarfed by the threat of excessive corporate power. And that's why you know, our, our, our greatest leaders in our history, Republicans and Democrats, have been warning Americans, don't go there. Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican, said that America would never be destroyed by a foreign enemy, but he warned that our democratic institutions would be destroyed by malefactors of great wealth who would subvert them from within. Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican, said during his most famous speech ever, he warned Americans against the domination by the military-industrial complex. Abraham Lincoln, the greatest Republican in our history, said during the height of the Civil War in 1863, I have the South in front of me and I have the bankers behind me. And for my country, I fear the bankers more. And Franklin Roosevelt, said during World War II that the domination of government by corporate power is, quote, the essence of fascism. And Benito Mussolini, who had an insider's view of that process, said essentially the same thing. He complained that fascism should not be called fascism. It should be called corporatism because it was the merger of state and corporate power. And what we have to understand in this country is that the domination of business by government is called communism. The domination of government by business is called fascism. And what our job is, is to walk that narrow trail in between, which is free market capitalism and democracy, and keep big government at bay with our right hand and, and excessive corporate power at bay with our left. And in order to do that, we need a, a, a vigorous, aggressive, well-informed public that understands all the different milestones on the path to tyranny, and we need a, a, an independent, and an aggressive press that is willing to stand up and speak truth to power. And we no longer have that in the United States of America because that has been stolen from us by, by excessive corporate power. So, um, you know, I, I'll say one other thing, which is that we're protecting the environment not for the sake of the fishes and the birds, but for our own sake. And, you know, we recognize that nature enriches us. It enriches us economically, yes. It's the base of our economy, and we ignore that at our peril but it also enriches us aesthetically and recreationally and culturally and historically and spiritually. And human beings have other appetites besides money. And if we don't feed them, we're not going to grow up. We're not going to become the kind of beings that our Creator intended us to become. 
When we destroy nature, we diminish ourselves. We impoverish our children. We're not fighting to preserve those ancient forests in the Pacific Northwest, as Rush Limbaugh says, for the sake of a spotted owl. We're preserving those forests because we believe the trees have more value to humanity standing than they would have if we cut them down. And I'm not fighting for the Hudson for the sake of the shad or the sturgeon or the striped bass, but because I believe my life will be richer and my community and my children will be richer if there are shad and sturgeon and stripers in the Hudson and where my children can see the traditional gear commercial fishermen of the Hudson that I've spent 23 years defending out in their small open boats fish with their ash poles and their gill nets using the same fishing methods that were taught by the Algonquin Indians to the original Dutch settlers of New Amsterdam. And, you know, um, I, I, want my, I don't want my kids to grow up in a world where there are no commercial fishermen on the Hudson, where it's, you know, where it's all Gordon Seafood and Unilever and 400-ton factory trawlers strip mining the ocean 100 miles offshore with no interface with humanity, and where there are no family farmers in this country, where it's Smithfield and Cargill and Premium Standard Farms raising animals in factories and treating their stock and their workers and their neighbors with unspeakable cruelty and emptying America's landscapes of human beings and poisoning them in the process. And I don't want my kids to grow up in a world where we've lost touch with the seasons and the tides and the things that connect us to the 10,000 generations of human beings that were here before there were laptops and that connect us ultimately to God. And I don't believe nature is God or that we ought to be worshiping it as God. But I do believe that it's the way that God communicates to us most forcefully. And God talks to human beings through all kinds of vectors, through each other, through organized religions, through the great books of those religions, through wise people through art and literature and music and poetry, but nowhere with such force and detail and texture and clarity and grace and joy as through creation. We don't know Michelangelo by reading his biography. We know him by looking at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And we know our creator best by immersing ourselves in creation and particularly wilderness, which is the undiluted work of the creator. And I'll just remind you of one, one last thing. It's, that in every religious tradition throughout the history of mankind, the central epiphany always occurs in the wilderness. Buddha had to go to the wilderness to experience nirvana and self-realization. Muhammad had to go to the wilderness of Mount Hera in 609 to climb the summit in the middle of the night and wrestle an angel there to have the Quran squeezed from him. Moses had to go to the wilderness of Mount Sinai for 40 days to get the commandments. The Jews had to wander the wilderness for 40 years to purge themselves of the 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Christ had to go to the wilderness for 40 days to discover his divinity for the first time. His mentor was John the Baptist, a man who lived in a cave in the Jordan Valley and dressed in the skins of wild beasts and ate locusts and honey. And all of Christ's parables were, were taken from nature. I am the vine, you are the branches, the mustard seed, the little swallows, the scattering the seeds on the fallow ground. He called himself a fisherman, a farmer, a vineyard keeper, a shepherd. The reason he did that, and it's the same reason all the Talmudic prophets, the Old Testament prophets, the Quranic prophets, all the way back to the pagan prophets like Esau, used uh, fables and allegories and parables drawn from nature to teach us the difference between right and wrong and te teach us what the face of God looks like. And the reason they did that was because that's how they stayed in touch with the people. Christ was saying, was saying things that were revolutionary. He was a revolting against fundamentalism of his time, the, you know, the fundamentalism of, of his own time. And the people w would have dismissed him as a quack because he was contradicting everything they had heard from the literate, sophisticated people of their time. But he was able to confirm, he was able, they were able to, 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 he, to confirm the wisdom of his parables through their own observations of the fishes and the birds. And they were able to say, he's not telling us something new. 
He's simply illuminating something very, very old. Messages that were written into creation by the Creator at the beginning of time. And we haven't been able to discern or decipher them until the prophets came, who had immersed themselves in wilderness, learned the language, and come back to the cities to teach us about the wisdom of God. And, you know, this is where our values come from, our most fundamental values of community uh, and, uh, and morality. And, you know, when we destroy these, we're not just destroying an economic resource, and we are doing that. The economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. But we're destroying a, a broader resource that goes to our humanity. And when we do that, you know, we lose at some, at some point. We'll lose our ability to be humane, and, and God help us all. So the things that, um, that are being taught in this school, the lessons that you've learned here, the methods of going out and, and uh, making capitalism work for our society rather than for a few wealthy individuals who are going to go into those gated communities and live isolated, privileged lives, divorced from the rest of us and divorced from the horrible, horrible reality that they have created for the rest of humanity. And um, I welcome you to the battleground, and I will see you on the barricades. Thank you very much. The truth is, we either get on with the business of restoring real freedom to all the beings on our earth, or freedom may be next on the hot list of extinction. Each week we hear the call. We can either pretend it is just people talking, or we can do the necessary. Do the necessary now, until your voice of the earth returns next Thursday, or any time on the archives. This is Sidney Wildsmith saying adios, until we meet again, here on the Wild Side News.